pick up in still in chapter 5. I'm not satisfied yet with... Uh, we have uh, worked through the presentation of Christ and the introduction of Him into the heavenly realm. We have uh, found out why He needs to come, and that is to satisfy the holiness of God. That that is the his purposing, is to uh, make that place for us and the necessity of him getting to heaven and giving the impact of that. Remember, we are trying to lay the redemptive foundation of the church, just like the Old Testament prophets tried to lay the redemptive foundation of Israel. And so they did that by going back to the things like Abraham, going back particularly to the um, Exodus and the events surrounding that, to the events around Mount Sinai, to the conquering of Canaan, they would go back to those kinds of covenant events to establish the foundation of God's judicial right to uh, do what he's going to do, and that is to judge their wickedness, to reward faithfulness, and it's built upon a treaty, a, a, an agreement um, that, that for God is legally binding not only on himself, but on us. The hymnal's not going to help me right now. Um, God, this doesn't look at all like Revelation. Uh, so we're coming into now establishing the, the, the basis of all that we're going to see in Revelation forward uh, is in the redemptive work of Christ, that he is the key now. So chapter 4, we found a presentation of heaven. We found that uh, it was the Old Testament heaven. This is the heaven that had to be satisfied. And we looked at holy, holy, holy. And why is that not showing you? Holy, holy, holy. Uh, i got to hit this one more time. There we go. Is the Lord, God Almighty. Uh, he's eternal. Uh, he is the Lord. And he is the one that uh, receives all glory. Um, the basis of that was the fact that he was the creator. I know you can't see that, but I'm going to bring it in here tight in a little bit. In fact, let me, uh, I can't do, uh, yeah, I can do that. That's right here. So we found that uh, he was the creator, and this all needed to be satisfied. This holiness of God uh, that was sung about in the Old Testament is being sung about in chapter 4. And we're going to be flashing back and forth between these two songs um, because changing the music in heaven is dramatic. How long has this song been sung? Well, we know it was sung hundreds of years earlier. It's the song being sung in heaven in Revelation 4. It's a song being sung in Isaiah. It's a song being sung in Ezekiel. Um, this is the song um, that, that brings glory to God. It's focused again around him as the creator. Um, also, his holiness. And these are the aspects, the, the aspect of God that was magnified the most and had to be satisfied with his holiness and that demanded judgment unless that holiness could be satisfied could be met could be could be uh, completed in in a sacrifice and of course the sacrifice of bulls and goats was unable to do that uh, hebrews tells us that the old testament tells us that uh, sacrifice offering is not really what i wanted what i want is a beating heart you don't have it and so I need to bring forward one who will do that and provide it for you. And so this is the Old Testament song. It's built upon the holiness of God, and it is uh, derived from his act as our creator, that he has this 
these accolades coming upon him as our creator, the single greatest act of God in history so far. But not ultimately the greatest act of God. It's going to be surpassed. And that's what we're seeing played out here in Revelations 4 and 5. And so here we have chapter 4 representing him as the creator, holy, holy, holy God. So let's uh, now back up and look at our scale here. So we're coming into Christ and we're going to go, we're jumping back and forth between these two thrones. There aren't two thrones in heaven. There's one throne. Um, of course, we had a throne back here, which is uh, God's throne. And so we're going to be representing it as it changes. You're going to see uh, a total of four thrones. But it's the same throne. It's just that the activity around it changes chronologically. So I don't want you to think that these are separate thrones, um, but the same place with different activities. So the throne is just representing that place in heaven. You're going to see it cropping up from time to time um, because that's going to be the focus point. So we're going to move into this time of the cross. And we saw, uh, just a quick review here, we saw Christ's death um, was going to a qualifier to do something, and that's to open the scroll. So the scroll was the problem in heaven. This is the dilemma. Who is worthy to open the scroll? No one on earth, no one on heaven, no one under the earth um, was qualified. And until Christ arrives in heaven... There is no qualified agent to open the scroll. Not even the one who sits on the throne could open it. No one in heaven. Not uh, a, a uh, savior in the tomb. That wasn't sufficient. Not a savior on the cross. No one on earth, under the earth, is qualified. We need the scroll open. The scroll is a representation of God's plan for all the future. Um, the scroll is a great presentation. We're going to look a lot more of it next week. Of uh, like a last will and testament. This is the this is the finished work. This is the rest of history is going to be laid out. And scrolls have been introduced in the past. Uh, Ezekiel's had to encounter them, and so they're not new to prophetic teaching. Uh, we real, readily recognize that, that this is a representation of here's what's coming. Here, whether it's judgment or blessing, here's what's coming. And so that is the scroll. And we're going to see these seals start to be bre- broken open next week uh, and uh, taking some time through. And it's going to take us at least three weeks to get through those seals because we want to do it very deliberately and we want to do it very carefully um, because we want to... There's a lot of confusion with them, and so I need to take some time with them. And so the dilemma is the scroll. The solution isn't just the cross, although that is necessitated for there has to be a death before there can be a resurrection. There has to be a resurrection before there can be ascension. And so this is a singular act of Christ that's going to be described as the lamb being slain. The slain lamb and the, the redeemer and his work. And so that then brings us to a representation. And John, of course, has said, look for a lion. Here comes the lion. You don't have to cry. Uh, we, we have a means to open the scroll. Look for a lion. He turns to look. And, of course, what he sees is a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that had been slain. Uh, that is, that what's arriving in heaven is a lamb that had been sacrificed. This is what he sees. It's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Um, it's, it's, uh, that's not the only title. He's also called the Root of David. And so it's linked to Judah, linked to David. We understand this to be Christ, but he's coming as the lion. We expect this root. We expect something strong, and we see something very, very weak. A slain, a, a butchered lamb has come. But in that condition, he is not really weak, but rather he is all-powerful. He takes his place at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we're going to move forward a little bit in our timeline. Look, we move forward. Did you catch that? Anybody miss it? This is where we were. This is where we're going. I know we're not moving very fast right now in time, but it's okay. It's going to get worse. (laughs) We're going to go back up here in a little while, in a few weeks. In about a month, we're going to back, goes backwards. Uh, So, we're back to the throne. And here we are. We're going to pick up in uh, verse uh, 7. Let's look at verse 6. I looked, behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sit on all the earth. We studied that very thoroughly when it was introduced in chapter 1. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He is qualified. He hasn't done anything with it, but he takes the throne. Or, or takes the throne. He takes the scroll. So he approaches the throne. He's a qualified now, and he's the only one qualified because he's the only perfect sacrifice. He takes the scroll out of the hand of the one sitting on the throne, and we have this dramatic event now happening. The, that of act, of verse 7, it has such a tremendous force that 8 and following is going to take time to describe its impact on heaven. We are also going to have a glimpse through the text of the song of its impact on earth. Okay, but we're going to start with its impact on heaven. In verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the throne, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So if we backed up, let me see if I can back this up a little. I don't know if I can. Um, that's right. We, we, we remember. Uh, the seraphim uh, are the cherubim. They're, they're the same entity. One is a descriptive term, the fiery ones. One is a, a name, a title. And so uh, we, we took time to show that what Ezekiel saw is the same thing as what Isaiah saw. Isaiah called them seraphim. Uh, Ezekiel called them cherubim. Uh, and we come into this setting and they're simply called the living creatures. Uh, and so those are the same And those same entities that were once employed in singing this very uh, powerful song to Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who is the Eternal One, who was, is, and is to come, uh, and is the creator of all that exists. That song that we have there in chapter 4. Given in two parts, we have kind of the chorus, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. And we have kind of the, the the... Verse, if you will, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. If you create all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now those same entities that were engaged in that singing are now going to abruptly fall down in worship, which they have done before. They fell down, but they didn't fall down before the Lamb before. Who did they fall down before? The one on the throne. And they have now transitioned themselves to falling down before the Lamb. And immediately, we have to make the connection. 
Because in heaven, only one entity is allowed to be worshipped in this manner by falling down on their faces, and that is God. So we're not seeing a different God, we're seeing God. The one who sat on the throne, and now is the Lamb. And they're going to pick up this singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And that is going to be the, the theme, if you will, if we get down to verse 12. He's going to re, they're going to recount in verse 9, 10, we're going to get there. I want to talk about that, but, but worthy is the lamb that was slain, who was slain is going to be the theme. It is, the attention has been diverted, and not just temporarily. I want you to understand that. Um, the work of God as creator has just been supplanted. There's something greater now than creation that's happened, and that is redemption has happened. And so we go into verse 9, um, and we're going to, I don't have to deal with some of what's described here, but we'll get to that. I want to get the force first, and then we'll back up, and then we'll finish strong. So they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed them to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, have made them kings and priests to their God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now you notice I changed the pronouns, right? If you have your Bibles open, you notice. I changed the pronouns. Most of you have markers in your Bible that direct your attention that uh, the us and we's could easily be them and they's. Um, and I would hold to that position, uh, and I'll explain why here in a little bit. But I don't want it to cause us to lose track of what it's really communicating here. Christ was slain. The Lamb was slain. Now the idea that this song would not start to be sung in heaven until after the rapture just doesn't make any sense. What John saw arriving in heaven was a slain Lamb who by not the rapture, not by his coming to earth to collect his bride, that is not what qualified him to take the scroll. This is not a future event. This is a historical event. Christ did die. He was slain. He arrived in heaven. He took the scroll. That's what made him worthy. You were worthy over the scroll because you were slain. And you were slain as a redeemer. You were the redeeming sacrifice that we were brought to God now by your blood. That there is a shedding of blood, was a removal of sin, and it allowed the opportunity, and, and I could wax quite lengthily, as you know from this morning, out of, the, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Goes right along with this morning, right? All men. We can cover all the bases in this language. This is the language of Scripture, by the way. The Scripture does not use the term race. It never associates race because it views us all as one race. The human one. Okay? And so the, the, the biblical terminology that's much more accurate to describe how we tell people apart is described here. Out of tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But that's how we distinguish people. Um, by their, the language they speak, the tribe they're from, that's your namesake, um, the language you speak, the people group that you associate with, 
uh, and then the nation, your nationality. These are the four ways God describes the variety on earth that has come about since the flood. And so, um, out of every one of those, Christ has made redemption possible. And He has uh, not just redeemed us from our, taken away our sin, He has put us in this position as kings and priests to our God. So we have this royal priesthood, which um, that was a, that's not going to be established in the, at the rapture. That is established theologically at the completed work of Christ, at the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the, the, the uh, enthronement of Christ in heaven. Uh, that is not something that we are waiting for. You are priests today, according to the order of Melchizedek, uh, like Christ. You are kings waiting your kingdom to reign and rule with Christ. We are royal priesthood today. Not in, just in, granted, our kingdom is in the future in terms of, of it, its physical uh, manifestation, but today we still have this position before God. And that one day we shall, interesting, we shall reign on the earth. So past tense, we have been made kings, we are priests. Future tense, we will reign. Okay, your position has been established. You are kings and priests by the work of Christ, redemption, and shed blood. And that means that one day, um, in the course of this book, you will reign. But the reign hasn't started yet. It's still to come. So, um, we're going to take a little time. That, that's the exciting part. Is uh, Where is the Lamb who was slain? Uh, and and I, I did not quite cover because I'm going to end with this. Power, riches, wisdom, glory, honor, honor, strength, honor, glory, and blessing are attributed to the Lamb. Which I want you to notice that, that is a wider length than what was spoken of of, Christ, of the one who sat on the throne, the Creator. Because the work is greater. That's why we transition from worshiping on Saturday to celebrate His creation, His creative work, to worshiping on Sunday to celebrate His redemptive work, the new creation, His resurrection, conquering sin and death. So, I have to deal with some issues because obviously the mainstream teaching is that this song is being sung by the church upon their arrival in heaven. And it's been some creative things that people have used to uh, communicate that, that this song is sung by the church, that the 24 elders and the four living creatures represent the church, and they are the singers. Um, and, uh, and so they would hold that be, because these people were redeemed. And it was us, we, um, that are redeemed. And because of the first-person pronouns, um, that have been brought into the text, uh, largely through the King James Version, um, their contention is that, well, Christ didn't redeem any angels or other created beings. He only redeemed men. Therefore, the people singing must be men. Um, and hence, uh, these must be the church. Never mind the direct correlation to the people singing in chapter 4 and in Isaiah and Ezekiel. We ignore that. By the way, uh, one of them, 
Uh, that's probably pretty well into David Jeremiah. How many of you know David Jeremiah out of California? Uh, he goes to this is how he approaches. He says uh, angels can't sing, and therefore, since this is a song, it has to be human singing. Um, that's how creative we have gotten to the degree of um, trying to make this a song about sung by the church in heaven. And therefore, the 24 elders must be the church. The four living creatures must be the four gospels um, or the four gospel writers. Some I don't know, somehow. Uh, and never mind the connection to Ezekiel and Isaiah. Uh, it's just irresponsible. Uh, exegesis. It's nothing that we would allow anywhere else in the Bible. If someone did that in our circles, we would laugh at them, and we ought to laugh at it if it weren't so sad and so widely held that this is the church singing about what Christ has done for them. Uh, we are going to have a song, by the way, by the church singing about what Christ has done for them. That's coming. Uh, but the church isn't in heaven yet. Jesus just arrived there. The church is on earth. There's going to be some members of the church arriving pretty soon, uh, but not a completed number by a long shot. Uh, but the song is being sung by these agents of worship, uh, the 24 elders. Uh, there are their own beings, uh, authorities, and the four uh, living creatures described here, which we have communicated are the cherubim, uh, are singing this song. Uh, and again, Verse 11, I think, makes it pretty clear that there are others going to join in. I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. The twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Again, the addition of every creature, and most of them have said, well, that's the animal kingdom. Um, I, I struggle with, with limiting that because we already have all the redeemed people accounted for, so therefore every creature must be the animal kingdom is coming up and singing these songs. The last stanza, if you will, of it. Um, what we have here is not the church singing about themselves, but the living creatures singing about the redeemed ones, the ones who would be the benefactors of it. The angelic community were not the benefactors of Christ's sacrifice. None of them, in any way, shape, or form. And yes, these are the same creatures that we saw in the Old Testament that were in heaven then. So if you're going to make them redeemed people, then they had to be pre-incarnate redeemed people in the Old Testament or something. It can't be. This isn't a representation of the church. The church isn't saying about themselves. But much better is to understand that with the coming of the Lamb and his arrival next to the throne to take the scroll out of the hand of one who sits there and being qualified that this song is focused upon him by the same entourage that for all these centuries, millennia, have been singing about the holy, holy, holy God who created all things and by his will they exist, is now transitioning to singing to the Lamb. 
a dramatic change. After thousands of years of hearing the same song, we now have a new song in heaven. Sung not to the one who sits on the throne, but to the Lamb, who is also God. One with the Father. And we find not only these that are the immediate caretakers of God's glory around the throne itself, but now we have the entire heavenly entourage singing out, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And then uh, the scope even goes greater, I would consider in verse 13, uh, to that, that every creature on heaven, earth, under the earth, and the seas, um, all that are in them, blessing and honor and glory and power. Do we hear that today? Perhaps not. With our ears. But in the heavenly realm, it's accomplished. And so we see this magnificent transition represented by this powerful singing. And I keep telling people, don't just look at what's in heaven, but listen to what's going on in heaven, because it's almost more communicating than what you see. What we see, we can try to twist the images and make it mean certain things. But it's really hard to twist what's being said, what's being sung, I should say. Right? It's hard to twist that as saying something more than what it is, other than the fact that they change the personal pronouns from, first per, from third person to first person. And so we look at this, and we have a preponderance of text, granted they're newer ones, that have the third person pronouns. And yes, the popular text does use the first person pronouns. But we have this opportunity to really think theologically. If you had to choose between these two, which do you choose? If, the text, if you have textual issues that you say, well, all of these texts say this, they're older ones, all these texts say this, um, they're the more popular ones, they've been copied more often and... and which one do I choose? Well, we don't just toss our coin in the air. We look at the context and we think theologically and we come to it and say, well, who did Christ redeem? Did he redeem angels? Did he redeem the, the cherubim? Did he redeem them? No, he redeemed men. But they're going to sing about it because it's the greatest act of Christ that supplants the act of creation by God. And so we find that, that if I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose it based upon theological truth, that it's going to be evidence in the text. And it has opportunity in some of the um, older manuscripts. And so we have uh, good reason to do this. We are certainly not manipulating it in any sense. But as we listen to this song, we see exactly what it is that Christ has accomplished for us, and yet it hasn't been completed. That's the purpose of the scrolls, to get us to the point where we shall reign. Still future. We shall reign on the earth. If our post-millennialists are right, and 
this is a future event and, and the pre, premillennialists and all that. Well, we're really pretty much in the process of reigning. If we're already in heaven, right? We're ready to reign because we're with him. And we're in the throne room and he is about ready to pour out his judgment. And, and an aspect of that is our reigning. No, that's still future. I would contend 2,000 years in the future still. From the time of this event occurring in heaven. From the, perp- from the point of view of John, we are still talking about history, near history. Chapter 4 is old history. That's what the Old Testament was like. That's what that covenant relation was like. Chapter 5 is this full presentation that's theologically so meaningful of what Christ has done for us. And how it, it impacted heaven. It was, it was just a blow that just transformed heaven from one glory to another glory. Not lesser, greater. And we have an opportunity now to see um, the Lamb take up His rightful place there and begin to open the scroll. And He has the scroll in His hand. As He receives this worship, He is about to break it open. Um, they're all worshiping him. They're all falling down for him. Again, he is the one who lives forever and ever. Uh, we are focusing in on, on that facet of who he is. He's the eternal one. Much like the, fa- the one before him was the eternal one, he's the one who lived forever and ever. And we're going to see these descriptions that everyone is going to talk about these things that, that the Lamb offers. This is what belongs to the Lamb because of his work. Power. Power of the resurrection, power over sin, and its consequences. We have that power, riches. What does Philippians tell us? My God will supply all your need according to... Class, come on. His riches in Christ Jesus. Right? And that's how he provides it. Wisdom. It's not from above, or it's not from below, but that is from above. Strength. Do you understand that that this is that which is honored of God, that He shares with us as co-heirs? What He has done is shared all of this. It's ultimately His, but He is willing to share this with us in our salvation. All this is given to Him, The focus of the song is clearly on him, right? He receives these things because he's worthy. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. But they are his to share. And he shares with us that strength. And thus he calls us, you should be more than conquerors through him who strengtheneth us, who gives us strength. That's how we are to be conquerors, not in our own strength, but in Him. When we are weak, He is strong. He shares all of these with us. Honor. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. He'll clothe you with honor. Those vessels of dishonor that, that He has made honorable. Um, glory. And of course, we look forward to that. That we will be able to share in His glory, to reign with Him. And, of course, blessing. That as he receives this blessing of the Father, he shares that with us as co-heirs. That everything Christ is inheriting in this 
occasion, in this event in heaven, He intends fully to share with us. We will reign with Him in His kingdom. We will share in that blessing. And ultimately, the greatest blessing we have described here is the favor of the Father. He is counted worthy. He is worthy because He is slain. Not counted worthy. He is worthy. He has qualified Himself. We are the counted worthy ones. Why? Because we get to share in all of this with Christ. While the angels sing about it belonging to Christ, and rightly it does, and we acknowledge it readily, none of this I can claim on my own, but because Christ has claimed it in heaven, He has stated that He will share it with us. And over and over again we find throughout the New Testament these aspects of Christ's work being offered to us in salvation. And so Paul can say, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that I might share in His sufferings, becoming like Him. That we can share in all these things in Christ. And so when we say, worthy is He to receive all these things, we agree. And when we start to consider that if <laughs> um, he's worthy to receive all those things and he wants to share them with me, no wonder I start singing along with the angels. What am I going to sing? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne of the Lamb forever and ever. These two entities who are one, the Father and the Son, glory to him that... As God gave this to Christ, Christ offers it now to me. I can partake in it. How can I not sing? And Christians who don't sing, I just want to challenge you. Christians who don't sing, I don't care whether they can carry two in a bucket or not. Christians who don't sing have not grasped Christ. If we mutter, if we do it under our breath, if we hum and, and we just won't lift up our voice, um, you don't grasp Christ. You don't, you don't appreciate what He has done for you sufficiently enough to lift up your voice and declare it in song. And that's one of the most powerful means of worship. And that's why I think a lot of churches have gone to saying this is the worship service. Well, everything we do is worship, should be, but when we talk about singing, why is singing so powerful? Well, it's not just because humans are the only ones that can sing. We probably are one of, I don't know that animals can sing, but, um, but rather it's because by that means, God's worshipped. He's exalted in us. Singing fills you up. It needs to be done. You're engaging your body more than in talking. You're engaging your mind uh, in what you're saying, if you're engaging the words of what you're singing and considering them, meditating on them, uh, why do you think, how did David meditate on the Lord? He did it through song. That's why we have a whole hymn book in the Bible. Song is that important. Biggest, largest, longest book of our Bible is a hymn book. Singing is that important. And if we remember all of this that Christ has done for us, what it means, 
How can you not sing? Join the heavenly chorus. He's made that much of an impact. Sing. Let it rip. Whether you have a good voice or not isn't relevant. The question is, do you appreciate what Christ has done for you? And this view of heaven is a powerful representation of what Christ has done for us. It's going to lay the groundwork legally for all things he's going to do while he opens this baby. And that's going to be another phenomenal event when it finally breaks the last seal. But we're going to get to these next, starting next week and see the horsemen as they start riding out. And uh, we're going to challenge that there are no such things as the horsemen of the apocalypse. No such thing. Remove that phrase from your vocabulary. It is full of error. We're going to find out next week why. Should we sing now? <laughs> Maybe I should have done my message first and then sung tonight. Just give you an opportunity to really crank it out. Um, whether you're many or whether you're just 28. Okay, I know there's myriad of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, and all the hosts of earth, under the earth, in the sea. Um, but it all began by 28 singers. Oh, we're only 22 tonight. We'll count Scott, 23. 28 singers, 24 elders, and four living creatures. They started it all. That's all Christ requires around the throne are those 28 entities singing. So don't get the idea that it has to be a huge number. It needs to be done with hearts enlarged by the theological power of what singing really is. Let's pray.